Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fitness Roundtable. Your hosts today are Dion, owner of Active Gamer Fitness, Andrew, owner of Caveman Barbell, and Phil, owner of Yash Training. Today, we will be covering college athletics, being an athlete at college, and pros and cons of being an athlete. So let's have Phil start us off. Hit me up with some information on college athletics. What are your feels on that? I think that it's a very broad topic. We're going to talk about a lot of the experiences that we've had, but we'll probably also touch on a lot of the, you know, like nationwide, uh, you know, stories that come along with college athletics. I don't think uh, any of us dealt with this, but there's a lot of controversy in terms of uh, athletes getting paid, not getting paid, whether or not they really are getting as good of an education when they're spending, you know, way more hours uh, working out than they are actually studying. Uh, I think that my experience with college athletics was very positive. I've also spoken to a lot of people who went to various schools nearby mine, and even the same one that I did in different sports that had completely different experiences. What about you guys? I've had some wild experiences with uh, college athletics. Um, Being a college athlete and then diving into different um, forms of sports, uh, starting off being like a track athlete in high school, then adding soccer and then going into college to be a soccer player. Um, I had a lot of different views on this. Um, I think we should probably what, like kick it off with our experiences as a college athlete, like personally, and then kind of keep moving yeah. through that. All right. So I'll drop mine. So I first went to a community college, which is a lot different than um, like your D3, D2 and D1. So I guess like a TLDR. So there's multiple different levels of being a college athlete. You have your division one, division two, division three. And then I think I was in, it's called JUCO. Um, just a smaller subsection. It might be wrong. I might have to look that up. But, um, it's a smaller subsection. It's not involved with the D1, D2, and D3 for community colleges. So I was a fresh new athlete. I just played one year of high school soccer and I moved up to community college and oh, I feel like a coach makes a big difference in a lot of sports you play. So I, I had a decent coach, but he really didn't, you know, foster proper um, team building uh, sports. Like it was really difficult to understand certain like formations. He didn't really have like a formation. We always changed our formations to like, battle a different team or a better team we never kind of found our home and that was always difficult for me like being a new player i could understand it it would be probably even more difficult for a seasoned player once i started to like learn a little bit more how frustrating it could be to go from learning one formation learning one set piece something and then completely changing it around to to work against another team um i know you gotta make your changes here and there when you're playing a sport or when you're trying to battle. But I know for me, like my college coach really didn't foster that kind of foundation for our team. And I know like that is probably a big thing that a lot of people will get when they come out of high school. They're thinking that like you want to have it. You got to look for a good coach if you're looking for a team. So uh, if I was to give a piece of advice to any high school level athlete listening to us right now, um, make sure you talk to a coach and make sure you have a good relationship with a coach. That's something that I didn't do. I just wanted to play on any team. And I know some people look at good teams and like, Oh, this team wins a lot. They must have a good coach, but make sure you sit down and have a conversation with that coach. 
maybe, maybe go check out their team, check out how they play and watch how the coach coaches and then make your decision on where you want to go. Um, that would be, that was probably my biggest takeaway from going through my different levels of sports. Uh, and that was just starting off, like I said, in community college. Um, and then I went to a D3 where I went to SUNY Oswego, but I'll leave that conversation for a little bit later because I have a lot to talk about on that. So I'll pass that off to Andrew. How'd you feel about your first collegiate level experience? First collegiate experience was at Hartwood College, which is in Oneana. That was pretty fun. I mean, I dove with, well, not dove with Phil, but I dove on the team that Phil was on. And it was definitely interesting because I went in not very good. At that point, I only dove for two years in high school. And I came from more of like a parkour type background. Like I was doing backflips at the local park and just doing random flips and stuff like that. And I started doing it on a diving board and I had zero form, zero technique. I was awful. And so it was interesting going to a D3 team, which at that point was very, very good. I think, what did we come that year, Phil, at the championship meet? Third or second, I think? We were pretty good. And we went. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. We, I think, only lost one dual meet. I don't, I don't, I don't quite remember. But yeah. either way, like, yeah, we were pretty good. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, being a very bad diver on a very good swim team definitely brought a lot of pressure from a lot of different sources. But ended up doing pretty good and got pretty good. But my goals were not aligned with diving at that point and definitely not aligned with Hartwick. So I left, went to the same community college that Dion went to, played two mm. years of, which I just looked it up. It's the NJCAA. NJCAA? Uh, yep, the National mm. Junior College Athletic Association. And cool. so played, yep, played two years of ball there, which was definitely the most fun I've ever had on a sports team, but the worst time I ever had playing a sport. Hated it really realized I did not like team sports because <laughs> I was a goalkeeper. So, I mean, you're getting shelled every single game and losing. It's not that much fun. But so I kind of lost my love for soccer there. But when it comes <laughs> to the, the ways the team were ran, uh, Harwick was very, very well ran. Dale, the head coach there was great. Paul was great. My two dive coaches were, were good. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a good program. And then FM was more lackadaisical. And I think that just comes with a, a junior college team. I mean, the turnover rate is so quick, man. You're just sitting there basically changing underwear at that point, And you really can't get a cohesive team. And it's just, it's tough. So, I mean, it's hard to, uh, hard to coach community college sports. I feel like in general, but yeah, well, both of them are overall pretty positive. I mean, definitely had its ups and downs, but Seven out of, I'll give it an eight out of ten. Straight <laughs> up, up eight out of ten. Yeah. So yeah, Phil, how was how was your first experience with as a athlete in college? Uh so I was uh in high school I did cross country swimming and track, but I decided that I wanted to uh stay with swimming as I went to college and I ended up improving a lot over the course of college. Uh, with the four years that I swam, but in you know going in into my freshman year of college, I knew that I wasn't going to be, you know, the best guy on the team. You know, I I knew that I was just going, and uh, no coach was going to like beg me to swim for them. But I I had some experiences while I was touring colleges in New York State where some of the coaches would like set up a meeting with me and then just not show up or talk about like my place on their team in just such a such a rude fashion 
you know, I understood that like I wasn't going to be the top scorer, but you know, I had this one guy who was like, yeah, I guess we could get you on the team, but like, I'm not sure we'll have room in the pool. And like, I, I get that, you know, there's, there's only so many lanes, but like, you know, when I, the, the reason that like, I eventually came to the conclusion that these guys were jerks and, you know, there are good people out there is that when I, when I uh, did tour at Hartwick, uh, the coach Dale was very open about, you know, what was, what would happen. He's like, you know, I have swimmers who have swam for me and guys on the team this year who, you know, could go to the NCAA championships. They swim this time, you swim this time, that's 13 seconds slower, but you know, you would always have space in our pool. You would always get the same workouts. You would, you know, have the same opportunities for success and improvement, and you would always just have just as much of a place on the team. And that was something that made me appreciate my experience at Hartwick as a swimmer much more, was that, you know, I was put on a team of people who, you know, we were very good for our conference and like sometimes would send people to the uh, NCAAs for Division Three, But, you know, in worldwide terms we weren't the best team ever but compared to what i knew going into there what i knew as like a high schooler going into college like these were people who were extremely talented and way better than i was and i got to swim on the same team as them and i found out that like you know just because someone is like faster at swimming they're still people and we all you know we became friends the the culture at hartwick was really good on the swim team uh, that's something that, you know, the coach Dale stressed a lot was that he wanted the team to not just be a bunch of people who work out near each other. He wanted them to be, uh, you know, a close knit group of friends because you're going to be spending so many hours a week with these people. You might as well like them. And he would arrange activities that we would do, especially in the beginning of each school year so that, you know, people would be able to get to know each other. And he would always encourage, you know, the older kids to like, you know, help the younger kids get, uh, you know, used to the first few years. And in terms of the actual, uh, like the sport and the, uh, you know, the practices and the meets and stuff, you know, I, I'm, I'm really happy that I had stuck with swimming. And it was, you know, something that like, if I had went to one of those other schools with some of those like, jerks of coaches that were there, I probably would have quit after a couple of weeks. Yeah, that was one cool thing about hard work that it was, good enough to be pretty hyper competitive but in a very family oriented way like everybody definitely talked a lot of shit but it was a lot of really loving shit you know everyone definitely appreciated all like everybody no one really not that i can remember at least no one ever had any like feuds that were huge or anything like that and that was pretty cool but and i think that's the biggest difference between uh community college to to d3 I can't say that just because, I mean, they're two completely different programs and I never, you know, I could have went to 10 different community college uh, soccer teams and they all could have been just as hyper competitive as, as Hartwick was. But <laughs> the JUCO league just wasn't as, as competitive where we played and then going to a D3 school that was competitive and watching everyone kind of not bully each other into success, but really push each other into success was really, really cool. Because like I said, I started out awful. I was... I mean, I don't know how many people who are going to listen to this know diving terms, but I started out with six dives on both boards being like 130, 140, which is absolutely atrocious and ended up hitting, you know, scores of like 260, 270 on the three meter and 250 on, on one meter. So, I mean, I got pretty good. And I think that's just because everyone was like, dude, you can't be bad on this team. Like, why are you bad? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it, it worked really, really well. And it was cool. And like I said, the coaches were good too. So that definitely helped a lot. 
And that's something that, uh, that Phil had me thinking about um, when he was speaking about was kind of like transparency of coaches. Um, that's what I found. It, it reminded me that's what I found was a big problem when I was in the community college level was transparency of your coach. We had a relatively small team and and the soccer along with like diving and stuff like you can kind of see when people are producing results or you want to know why X person is better than you. Like, why am I not getting starting time? Why am I not getting time over this person? And just like Phil said, he's like, all right, this guy has an X amount of time better than you. That's why he's getting this lane. And a lot of coaches aren't transparent with that. Like my coach wasn't transparent with that at all. We would have multiple like players on our team who you could physically see and watch them every single game, you know, not track a ball, not play good defense, give up on plays. And then when you're in practice, you you would talk to the coach like, hey, why is he starting every single time and he is doing negative, making negative plays? And you're not saying anything. You're not holding everyone accountable. And that's kind of the feel that I got with your your dive team you're talking about. Everyone was kind of holding each other accountable. You're like, they're bullying us into being better. But to me, I feel like that's when your team holds you accountable. Like, hey, like you want to be good. We're going to hold you accountable. But it starts off with the leadership. And our leadership was never at that point where they would hold everyone accountable. People would play not not hard. They would not work hard. In practice, they wouldn't work hard at all. They wouldn't try to help other players. And then you're like, every single game this person is starting and never coming off the field, what makes them better? You're not being transparent with me. And that caused a lot of dysfunction amongst players in a team and a lot of non-cohesiveness because everyone would kind of build their little sections of groups of friends. And they'd be like, all right, I don't really want to hang out with this person because he's super rude. We don't understand why he's doing what he's doing, and we're not getting any further information based on that. But when it came to my what I did like about <laughs> so I know I said a lot of what I didn't like about community college soccer. What I really did like about it was the learning curve. It wasn't hyper competitive. So for someone like me who came out of high school and played zero soccer. Andrew knows this. I started playing soccer my senior year and he was, <laughs> and we played in the gym at our high school for a little bit, like in the practice training room or whatever, going to the community college level where it wasn't hyper competitive allowed me to kind of ke- get my footing and see how far I was compared to like the Herkimer colleges and the um, TC threes and stuff, the teams that were really putting in work and what I could strive to be. I think that's a number, another key aspect of picking a college, like you said, making sure your coach is transparent. Along with what you said, FM, when I went through, we had a different coach, but the mentality of the whole soccer team was pretty soft. No one could take any constructive criticism. No one really wanted to go out and play hard. Everyone just kind of played soccer more of like a hobby. I didn't like it. I didn't like that at all. I think that's why I stopped liking soccer as much too, because diving, at least I knew I sucked for a reason. Where (laughs) when I was getting shelled, I did not have a keeper coach my freshman year, but my senior year, I guess, at FM, I did have a keeper coach. His name was Tyler. He was a madman, such a great coach. And he just held me accountable. I actually had someone who was going to be like, hey, dude, you got to not, you got to catch that ball. Like he would yell, not yell at me, but he would be like, dude, you were supposed to make that save. Why weren't you doing that? Like, you know, you're better than that. And he got me so good at soccer. But being good at keeper and still being on a bad team still doesn't feel good. <laughs> but on the same or the opposite side of that with Dale, dude, Dale, would, he did not care who you were. He would rip into you. He didn't care if you're the fastest dude, the slowest dude. If you're doing something stupid, he's going to be like, dude, quit being an idiot. We have, st- we have work to do. 
And I think that, like you said, that leadership stemmed from the top down. And it was, I mean, I don't know how the team was after I left, but the, the year I was there, it was, it was well knit. It was pretty close and definitely kept well. There's a big difference between uh, the two sports that we're talking about in terms of like how you function as a member of the team. And it's something that I always enjoyed about uh, swimming as well as I, uh, I ran cross country. And, you know, when you, when you do one of those sports, there's like, there is a team, there are other people that you're doing it with, but you can succeed even if they don't, you know, you can have uh, the best time that you've ever done. You can win your race and your team can lose. And there's like a together, but also individual aspect of like, we, we can't succeed if we all fail. And even if we all succeed, we might still fail. And there were some examples of that. Like, you know, there was one team that was in our conference who would always beat us every time we did a dual meet against them. And we knew that even if we showed up and everybody, you know, did their best and succeeded by their own standards, we would still probably lose to them in terms of points because they just had people who happened to be faster swimmers. You could go into a race, you could have the best meet of your life, but your team could still lose. And that was something that like, you had this like together feeling of like, you know, what you do matters, but what everyone does still also matters. You know, if you are on a soccer team and you're the best goalie there is, but you know, they still score one on you and then your team doesn't have any offense and they don't score any, then, you know, how good you are as a goalkeeper doesn't end up mattering. And how good you are in one of these, uh, you know, swim races, uh, you know, it, you can like look at it on paper, you know, you can, you can tell someone like, okay, I made a bunch of saves and I only let, let one through, but in swimming, you can be like, okay, I won that race. I scored this many points. And that was something that like kept me in those sports was that like, I could measure my success independently and against myself was that like, if I, you know, if I go out there and, uh, you know, maybe we win the meet, but my races go poorly or maybe we win and my races go well, I only have one person I can blame for my own performance. That, you know, if I, if I touch the wall and I finish my race and then I look up at the clock and it says something that I'm not happy with, I can't turn to the guy next to me and be like, you know, what were you doing there? Like, I swam my race. Yeah. It's not a team sport in that way. And that's, that's something that I always, I always liked about it. And then what you were saying about how Dale would treat people, you know, he... He did, you know, there's there's a point to which like he gave maybe like a tiny bit more of his attention to the people who were a little faster, but he would never give them better treatment. Maybe it was just that like, you know, they needed a little bit more, you know, push because they couldn't, you know, they were those type of people. Maybe some people that were a little slower needed that as well. And, you know, if he looked up and some people were supposed to be like doing push-ups up on the deck. And he looked up and they're like wrestling with each other. He'd shout at whoever it was. You know, he's not someone who shouted all the time, but like he's he's not going to let it slide if you're the fastest kid on the team. And he's not going to let it slide if you're the slowest. He he cared about people putting in hard work and improving over time. And that's why I like stayed on the team was that like those were the values that I valued. Uh, that, you know, if you if you get up, you do the practices and come the end of the season or come whenever the meets are that you like show that you've put in the work and you've made the improvements uh, that 
you you're like recognized for that. And I had team members who were, you know, miles faster than me, just so much better than I was at swimming. And they would say that they, you know, admire my hard work sometimes, but like it's it's not about like how good you are in the pool because none of us were going to the Olympics. You know, people people would admire each other for like how how much they could put into a into a swim workout or, you know, anything like that. And that was like that culture of like, you know, we were we were pushing each other and what did you say? Bullying each other into success. It was like, what are you doing spending so many hours here if you're not gonna get better? It's you know, and that wasn't just towards you, that was towards everyone. You know, we had people every year who would come uh you know, in the beginning of the season and then drop out after a few weeks because they weren't trying and they weren't, you know, they weren't really putting it into it. And you didn't have to be fast to get the respect of the rest of the team, but you had to be committed. You had to care about what you were doing. And that's why I loved it. Yeah, Phil, that that kind of moves me into my feels with uh, when I was in Oswego because you said you have to be there and be committed mm-hmm. and work hard. Um, when I graduated from my community college i went to suny oswego and it's a d3 college and i don't know how you're i don't know what sports other sports you guys played but did you guys have like a preseason or a like summer season that you had to participate in i think fm had like what a two-week preseason yeah it might have been a week i'm not sure i yeah it was either i think my first year was two weeks year after that it was a week and it was yeah basically like all the international kids that would play which are like six of them and not even international like international and then maybe the kids from the city or out of state would come up and there'd be like six to ten of them mm-hmm. and then they would live at the dorms and then do the week or so of preseason and the classes would start but nothing ever super serious especially for when i dove i mean because my diving coach was a lot more lax than the swim coach was okay uh we so swimming is a winter sport so we didn't need to come up early for it to be preseason. yeah we had uh i think it was probably like if we started school on the 5th of September, we weren't supposed to have like official practices until like the 25th or something like that. There was like three weeks where we weren't supposed to have practice, Mm -hmm. but we would always have like the team would practice. The coach couldn't be on deck. He couldn't be giving the practice. And it's the same thing with like finals week, but we would still be doing it like pretty much officially. Okay. So yeah. So in Oswego, I went up to, um, I did a training session, well, two-week session, trained with a team, um, and I really enjoyed it. Like, the coach was kind of kind of hard to deal with. Um, not too many of the kids enjoyed him when I was – I shouldn't say kids because we were grown adults by then. Like, you know, yeah. so not, not too many of us really enjoyed the coach, but he did have a good theory. He did have a good coaching philosophy. Mm-hmm. He, he came from a team where – they won five years in a row. He was on a military team. So he was very strict in everything that he did. And he was always like, I'm going to be, I'm taking notes. I, I go, I'm going to learn. I'm going to further my, my training and my soccer education. I'm going to, we're going to be a good team. And I really enjoyed that about the team. But the problem was once I started to get into my major and being a student athlete and not just an, just an athlete anymore, because at community college is a little bit easier to do my, my studies and, and play a sport but once it started to get real serious and i'm like i i can't make a practice from three to five and then do the the team practice you know like you said where it wasn't the coach running the practice but it was a group of the team training together 
and I'm I was like I this is so much more time in, intensive than I thought it was and it was really difficult to balance both school and athletics at the same time for me when I went to the D3 um and I think it was just because the competition got a little bit harder there was more expected of you and me being a, a competitive person I didn't want to be the person who looks at my teammates like hey why'd you mess up because I always know whatever I do affects how I play so if I'm not training to my best of ability and I'm not putting in the hours, I can't blame anybody else. Kind of like, like even though it's a team sport, at the end, if you didn't run that extra mile that week and you get tired on a breakaway, that's not your teammate's fault. That's that's mm-hmm. your fault. If you didn't make a proper pass or a proper touch, like that's not because your teammate passed you the ball too hard. You didn't you didn't practice enough. You didn't you didn't put in the effort to to keep yourself accountable, and that's. That was really hard for me when I went to a D3 um, school. But I played for like two weeks. And oddly enough, um, I was just like to the coach, I'm like, hey, man, like I can't play on the team. Like I would really love to. And I appreciate you giving me this opportunity because I squeaked in. One of the foreign kids uh, from Canada, he didn't get his visa in time. So there was one spot open and I got it. <laughs> like, And he was like. So I came up, I came up there and I, I tried and I was like, Hey man, I, I just can't do this. He goes, it's okay, boss. And then I played on the club team. Now mm-hmm. <laughs> our club team was very, was very competitive and I really enjoyed the lacks of how club teams were. So it was, it was a really weird transition for me from going to like a community college to a D3 team and how different they handle their sports and their, their, uh, student athletes but i mean they did give a lot of the student athletes a a lot of breaks which was surprising like i wasn't really used to that so if you couldn't take a test because you had a game you just bring in a slip to the teacher and say or the professor and and tell them hey i can't make this day can we reschedule it and they were kind of like obligated i don't know how it is for bigger schools i'm pretty sure it's even more serious than that where they can pick a day they can take the exam and they work around your sports schedule but that was always the the crazy thing for me was how how easily they were willing to work with you in the administrative side to help your student athlete. So that was kind of like a big transition for me when I switched from a a smaller school to a bigger school. Yeah, I feel like once you go to a bigger school, every single time you jump, you're going to get more and more things available to you because going from community college, or I guess not even that, going from D3 to community college, I saw... I don't want to call it a budget change, but I definitely saw how the athletics were handled at a community college level to a D3 level, like you just said, mm-hmm. and then going from D3 to D2 and then so on is just so much more. You have so much more given to you and not given to you because really you deserve it at that. I mean, you have to, because at a, at a junior college level, I was giving a lot of time to soccer and I was being allowed different test dates because of my schedule. and. D3, like we got that as well. You know, we got a lot of leeway because we were athletes. And then we had Harwick's a cool school when it comes to they have D3 programs, but they have two D1 programs, uh, soccer or men's soccer and women's water polo. I don't know if it's still like that, but it was when I went through. I think they've actually gotten rid of them. Yeah, I I, I yeah, thought so. Yeah. Best years there. Mm-hmm. Because our women's water polo was absolutely disgusting. They were, they were so, so good. good, so good. They used to go against schools like Stanford, Hartford, like Harvard, like big, big schools, and they were just disgusting. And then our men's soccer team used to be very good back in like the 70s and 80s, I guess, but mm-hmm. kind of fell off the wagon and just never came back. 
And, but even then seeing this small school with about 1600 people in it, what they would give to the D one athletes, because they, they had to, they were doing so much more traveling than we were because for D three and, and, and junior college, I never left the state, you know, and these guys were leaving and going to Texas. They were going to California. They were going everywhere. And so you kind of have to give them that leeway, especially once you get to schools like Dion, you and I were talking about before the, uh, before we started recording Texas A&M. You know, that's yeah. a massive school and their athletics bring in $220 million, I think you said, or 200 yeah. something crazy. Yeah, and, $219 million. And why I understand that athletics shouldn't be the number one priority for a student athlete. It should be student and then athlete. But if you're expecting, I mean, I'm talking D1 at this point, if you're expecting these kids to go out there and perform in front of 30, 40, 50,000 people live, and then not only that, but having millions of people watch them. Yeah, I think you have to give them a little slack. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, there's so much pressure on you. If you if you go from being a good team to going defeated, you have grown-ass adults talking shit about you. You know, you're an 18, 19, 20-year-old kid playing ball, doing what you love, and then you got grown-ass men and people talking shit because they have nothing better to do than watch kids play ball. It's Yeah, it's a lot of, lot of pressure that I don't think a lot of people talk about. And no, that's so, that's so factual, man. That's like, that's a wild situation. Like the amount of money people spend and the, the kind of heat that they get because they are treated like professional athletes. I've definitely heard a lot of household names of football players, you know, and families are like, oh, he sucked. I lost a $20 bet on him. Like, like it's their fault. <laughs> like, I'm like, this is yeah. a college student. It's a kid. Yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of expectation on being a, a student and an athlete in that like in, in D3 and especially, you know, D3 in general, but especially at Hartwick, we were emphasized that whole student first thing. And I was able to make it work. But, you know, if I can look back at my own college experience, like maybe I should have devoted a little bit more time to my studies. And the swimming schedule was, you know, without even counting morning practices. If you were doing like a, a four to six swim practice, you would be doing your like, you know, weightlifting and dry land workout between two and four. You had all your classes in the morning. You know, your whole day was filled with this. You're committing so much of your time and who you are that like I understand when people do sports in college, whether it's D3 all the way up to D1, that they identify so much with their team and their identity as an athlete because they didn't have much time to do anything else. I mean... You know, we we got out of, uh, you know, practice and we'd go to dinner and then we'd be like beat and done for the night. You know, you're not going to like take up a whole bunch of hobbies or join a whole lot of clubs. You're not going to have like a like college radio station when you're working out 30 hours a week. Uh, you know, I, I had friends who who really struggled with the uh, the balance of academics and athletics. And a lot of the people on our team would uh like fail out their first semester and then like have to, you know, <laughs> no, not you. I can think of like five or six other people, uh, you know, that would, um, one of the guys who ended up being one of my senior year roommates, his first semester got like maybe under a 1.0 and he ended up coming back to school. And, uh, I think he finished out his degree and now he's in the Navy maybe. Uh, but he, you know, some people, they're like, they don't understand enough about freedom because of how they grew up that like now that they're in control of their whole day, 
they like you know maybe they'll go to class or maybe they won't maybe they'll just play video games and go to like swim practice but then not go to class and not study and you know coming out of college with a productive degree that like helps you in your career is so much more important than you know that one practice in your d3 d2 even d1 program i mean the number of people who go from d1 athletics to professional athletics is very low and while they're still they're still held to that standard for the years that they're there they don't they're not making any money and they're academically like they're not just like given more slack sometimes they're not given uh, a proper education i mean i've read stories about people who are enrolled in like fake classes that are you know they just they enroll in this you know this secret class that's just for the the football team or just for the basketball team and then you know they never attend and then they get they get an a so it boosts their average uh and you know how can you expect people who are you know we were in d3 working out four hours a day and in d1 programs and you know football and uh you know especially football because of all the money that it brings in but in other big sports and d1 programs you know they're like minimum maybe they're working out four or five hours a day and then they have like team meetings and all this other stuff and then when they travel you know they're not just traveling like a couple hours they're you know going across the states and you know they're taking a lot more time out of their academic schedule even people who are playing these sports and are doing their best to get you know the productive degree so they can you know have a successful career outside of their athletics it's hard i don't understand how they do it i mean you know whether it's swimming d3 or football d1 balancing being a person outside of a student then being a student then also being an athlete all at the same time while trying to succeed at athletics and get good enough grades to get your degree it's complicated i i mean i did it but it was hard for me and it's even harder for people in those d1 programs like you said when i was doing the d3 training for soccer just like a small breakdown was you know practice for two hours then we actually did have weight training so we would train you know in the gym for an hour we have team meetings watching film and then you have like team bonding with your team and it wasn't it wasn't expected but you kind of did it because you don't want to miss out on that stuff with your team and then before i knew it my you know 12 hour day because i wanted to sleep a little bit was six seven hours of soccer and 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 within within that time i had to eat travel to and from the field travel to my classes you know make sure i studied and then i had a i had a super i'll admit it right now my gpa i think was a one three my first semester i was i got put on like academic probation and it was because mm -hmm. of that you know i would train so much and then i'm like i don't really want to read this book today i just don't i don't want to do this like this is not yeah. what, what I, I want to just lay here. Sometimes I would just sleep. And then next thing I know, I would go into my class and I'm like, wait, what have we been? I haven't been here in like two weeks. What did you, the last thing I remember you talking about was ge the geology and all this other stuff. I'm like, I can't, I don't know what you're talking about. This, this is a what? This is a physics class? <laughs> like, I, when did I sign up for this? When I'm thinking of like D1 athletes, I, I really believe they should, I mean, I'll say it right now, I think they should get paid because if you're putting in all this time, your degree probably isn't something that's hyper difficult. You're not like working for your doctorate or, or anything. You're not working for your PhD. 
you're probably just really fo- you're kind of commanded to focus on the team because I feel like a lot of politics play in into effect on that. Like, oh, you're not really focused on this team. You don't need to be here. Then when you don't need to be here, you lose your scholarship. And then now you, now you can't come back. So it's A, do I choose to put and devote all my time to this one sport? And then, like you said, you graduate because you had your, your like fake classes or you took a very simple class that has nothing to do with your degree just to boost your GPA. You get a degree in something that you really don't care about, and then you can't apply that to a job when you don't get drafted to the NBA, the NFL, the MLS, and you're kind of stuck on, well, what do I do now? And I feel like if these athletes got some percentage of what they made the school, and I'm talking about the larger D1 things, like we said, Texas A&M, I have the, the finances here for this, for the total revenue. Like Texas A&M was $212 million. Ohio State, for their, this is for their football teams were 205 million michigan was 195 million and alabama these were just the top five alabama was 177 million dollars now is that per year yeah total revenue wow yeah and if that's what you're making uh during those times and this is for two and just to clear it up this is for 2017 to 2018 so Mm -hmm. it's recent if you're making your school that much money and before the podcast, me and uh, Andrew were talking about this. We did the the math. If your tuition is $100,000 and that's what they're giving you is like full ride, full scholarship, everything included, whatever, $100,000, that's 0.0005% of what the total revenue is that they <laughs> made as a school. And when you're done with your, with your degree or your four years, you don't make it to the NFL. You're just actually left with nothing. But this school has off your four years, if you're a star player – but you just don't make it to the NFL. You've made this team $800 million. Like, yeah. And you got nothing, just a four year degree that says, Hey, I'm sorry. And that's, that's, <laughs> my, <laughs> that's my piece on that. Uh, I completely agree. There's, I mean, it's not just like, should they get paid for what they're doing? Yes. But should they get paid? Why do we even have to ask? Why shouldn't they get paid? Why, yeah. why is there this barrier of like, well, they're students, so they shouldn't. But like, there's so much money flowing in. You, there, you can like watch videos of the, you know, they'll build these insane uh, like complexes where, you know, there'll be like a pool inside of the locker room that's just for the football team. And the coaches of these teams will make like, you know, five, 10, 20 million dollars a year. And the kids will get nothing. And it's like, the money's there, you know, it's not like there's no loss of integrity, you know, professional athletics exist. And that's what a lot of these kids are going for. And if it's okay to be a NFL player, why shouldn't the, you know, the star player at Ohio state be able to make some amount of money. And, you know, if they can like make it happen fairly, put it happen, put it at some level, but from the, the NCAA itself, I mean, they should, they should get, they should get money. And, you know, Maybe these kids who go in, who sometimes go in from situations where they've never like seen the kind of like luxury that these schools will pour on them. And then they'll suddenly lose if they lose their scholarship, they get injured, which you can't control. I mean, you can do your best to be the best athlete possible, but like you twist your ankle, you twist your ankle, and then suddenly you can't go to college anymore. I mean, I really think that they should get paid. I agree with all of that. I, I guess I'm only going to talk for D1 football teams right now. There's so many other 
teams out there that are, I mean, because you said that that was only off the football team. I literally mm-hmm. thought when we were first talking about that, that that was the whole entire revenue from every single team, Dion. I uh, thought oh, 200, yeah. and that's so that's just the football team. That's like, I don't think anyone who's pro college athletes getting paid is saying they should be making millions of dollars. No one says that. Everyone who's, who's anti college athletes getting paid are always like, well, they're getting their education paid for. Just talking for the football team, if you have, I mean, shit, dude, how many kids are typically on a D1 football team? Even a D3 football team, Hardwick's football team had 100 kids on it. I think yeah. they had more than 100 kids. They had so many kids that they had a double numbers. Like mm-hmm. there was like two number fours or there was two 50s. Like, and that's a D3 school. So you have 100 and let's go, let's go just 100. Mm-hmm. I would say maybe 15, 20 of them actually have a full ride, maybe. And then after that, obviously, there's other kids who are getting maybe 50%, 20%, whatever. But in the grand scheme of things, they're not, the school isn't losing $100,000 there. It's not like the athlete just isn't paying them that money and then they just don't get it. There are still so many other students who are paying for not their education, but they're paying for an education, not losing that $100,000. And so just to say, well, they have $100,000 in scholarships. It's like, yeah, they have $100,000 of Monopoly money that doesn't get them anywhere. <laughs> right. And so if you, I mean, I don't know. There's obviously a lot of pros and cons to giving an 18-year-old kid $100,000 or even $50,000. I don't think that you should be able to just give it to their parents. I don't know who these kids' parents are. I think there's obviously rules that have to be put in place in order to get these kids paid. But why not? I mean, even at the D3 level, if you give the kid... Like you were saying, Dion, before, make it like your work study. Kids are going to the library and, and you know, helping the librarian out for minimum wage for 10 hours a week. Let's let's get these kids' hours tracked out, see how many hours they work and put into the football team or the swimming team or the soccer team a week. And let's give them minimum wage. You know, let's give them, let's give them less than minimum wage. Let's give them five bucks an hour for 40 hours a week. You know, that's still... A decent, yeah, like, two hundred bucks. You know, I mean, you can you can yeah. pay for your food. You can you you don't have to worry at that time because you know, like mm-hmm. you said, there's there's kids who come in these situations who don't have these luxuries at home. You know, kids. You know, depending on what situation you're in, that you have to worry about your college education plus your your athletics plus now you have to worry about how your family is going to eat back home. Like I'm worried about my brother and sister or my, my mom or my family. Like there's so many other worries that these kids have that if you just gave them a little bit of cash, man, I don't know, not even a little bit of cash. I think D1 kids deserve more than minimum wage per hour. I don't I mean, know how much they deserve, but it's they deserve a lot more than zero. <laughs> well, to go off of what Phil said earlier and um, give you like an idea, you said the coaches getting paid. The number one paid coach is from Clemson. He gets $9 million. And if we're just going off Texas A&M, it says his school pay is $7.5 million along with max bonuses. And if they want to buy him out of his contract, it's $60 million. That's a a school buyout as of (laughs) $12,119. So, like, like even can't pay the college kids. Yeah. This guy's making so much money. (laughs) Like, and he's he's not even an NFL coach. He's just a straight up, you're you're working for a college. Like, that is astronomical. Yeah, and it's it's crazy as well that the um a lot of these schools, you know, not not all of them, but a lot of them end up being like entities of the state. Like uh, Texas A and M is a government organization, so these coaches ended up being the highest paid government employees within the states. 
that the uh, you know the coach of um, like Texas A&M, for example, or like any any school that isn't a private school ends up being higher paid than anyone who works for the government just because that university is technically a government organization, which is wild. Like, <laughs> why why do they need to be making that much? You know, why don't we just say like, okay, you know, they can make they can make a hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, that's, that's a lot of money. People living outside of like, you know, big metropolitan areas don't need that much money. You look at the houses that some of these coaches have, they're massive mansions. Why do they need to have that? We just hit like a crazy topic right there. <laughs> I was like, we went from, how do you feel about college teams and time to like, yeah, people should be getting paid. That was, that was a real talk right there. Nine mil. All right, let's let's cut that in half. Let's give them four point five mil because that is still Yo. an exorbitant amount of money. And then we'll distribute the other four point five to the players. Stop trying every, to take every away, man. Stop <laughs> trying to take people's boats. <laughs> <laughs> I can't have two mansions. I can only have one. This is absolutely ridiculous. Oh man. So. <laughs> so that was like that was like a somewhat con of of being a pro. Uh, a college athlete? What do you think a pro would be of a college athlete? I was just thinking about that. Definitely. I mean, even at the junior college level, people kind of look at you different as an athlete. Everyone kind of likes the athletes. If you're not an asshole, you know, no one really ever goes out. And, and I mean, obviously you have your dickhead athletes, but everyone kind of looks at you different. Everyone kind of likes you. And it's, I mean, going to a D1 school, those big, big schools, and then yeah. having those, you know, those kids get looked at. I mean, they're superstars. For four years of your life, you pretty much escape reality and you become an NFL player to a yeah. certain extent. And it's, I, yeah, that's, that's awesome for people's confidence. And I mean, sometimes <laughs> it goes a little bit too, too much to their head, but for a normal, nice person, that's, that's a, that's a good, good thing to have for four years. You know, you become like the superstar and then whether reality hits or you go to the NFL or NBA, it's fun, you know? No, I definitely, I feel that because what I was, when I was thinking of when I was a, a collegiate level athlete, there were so many more pros, I believe, that were off the field than there were on the field, I guess I would have to say. So for me, I enjoyed the fact that I would have a bunch of friends that I could hang out with. Like, honestly, you built a team of and a group of friends. There's people today that I'm best friends with who I would never have met if it wasn't for soccer. And we built such a good, long-lasting relationship that I, I'm, I'm really happy for that. Like, I was really very excited that I could do that. And when I went to D3 and I noticed that people were doing, like, the Greek life stuff and doing, like, fraternities and frats, and they were paying for this. And, you know, you had to, like, pay your donations or your dues to the frat or for, to the fraternity. And not saying that's a bad thing, but I never had to do that. And I never knew what – I never felt like I was – enticed to do that or any need to do that because i always had a group of people who were like-minded so that was a big pro like obviously staying in shape that i was in the best shape of my life when i was in college um just the amount of activity i was doing was probably insane like you were saying uh everyone kind of like looked up to you a little bit you're like oh i'm a college athlete and they're like oh what like what sports do you play you know and you kind of never really got that when you're like oh hey i'm a i'm a linguistics major they're like oh nice like <laughs> like, <Nice. laughs> I didn't ask you what you were. I didn't care. I don't care. <laughs> you know, so it definitely, it definitely kind of gave you a good feel. And the the long lasting friendships that I made throughout sports, I think, is always the number one benefit of any sport. 
even if it's like a solo team thing, I guess I shouldn't say solo team, but if it's something like track where you're kind of gauging your success on what you're doing solely, but you're also a part of a team and it's a small collective, you still create that camaraderie and usually take away good friendships from that as well. Yeah, for sure. I still talk to a lot of people that I swam slash dove with and played soccer with. Yeah, I, I know I know what y'all are talking about with the uh the camaraderie and you know the the friendships. I mean, uh a little less than a year ago I went to uh a wedding, uh the second wedding that I went to for Heartwick people. Uh a year before that in the summer, so two years ago, I saw you at uh Nick and Ema's wedding. In the spring of twenty eighteen, I went down to visit uh one of my friends from college, another guy, Ryan, uh in in Miami, and we went to a music festival. And, you know, I've, I've seen people here and there and connections that, like, I don't think I would have easily, as easily have made outside of sports. Yeah, no, like the pros and cons of that is, is so high. And um, the last topic I think we wanted to kind of touch on, and I think we should definitely speak on it, is uh, proper injury and prevention for training on a college team. Because you stated that you can't do nothing about rolling your ankle and you lose your scholarship. Um, I remember a while back when I was doing my degree for health uh, promotion and wellness management, a college coach. Um, so I have two stories. A college coach got hired because his training, his strength and conditioning training regimen had a very low risk of women on the soccer team getting ACL injuries. Women have a very high risk of doing that in uh, college sports. I don't know why. Um, hmm. I don't have the like exact specifics on what it, why that is, but a lot of women tend to injure their ACL or MCL in um, collegiate level soccer. And he got hired because he had a very good program. And throughout his programming um, as a coach, he had a low risk or a low rate of females getting injured. And a second story of training and injury prevention was I heard of another coach who would give his athletes Red Bull before games because he said they needed to get energy. And I feel a lot of times coaches try to take on the roles um, <laughs> of trainers and coach strength and conditioning coaches and even physical like PTs and physical therapists. And they're not, and they're like overstepping their, their boundaries and possibly causing harm. Like drinking a Red Bull before a game disclaimer is not good. Don't <laughs> like, do not do that. Please don't boost your, your heart rate like that. Um, when you're doing long cardio exercise, that's, definitely not a not a plus so it's it's tough there's a lot of there's a lot of gray area i feel in and injury prevention as far as what coaches can do but how do you guys feel about that i'm not going to go too deep again between the differences between (laughs) juco and d1 but the budget that is behind a team obviously increases and so we had for a soccer team uh the community, community college level was two coaches that's it you know, that's the people who ran our strength and conditioning, our cardio, our team, everything. Harwick, we had kind of four, you know, because the divers had their two coaches and then the swimmer had their two coaches. But my coach was still Dale. So I guess I had like three coaches, you know. And as you go up with your budget, obviously you get more and more, you know, once again, D1 football players. How many, how many people are coaching that team? It, it, at least, yeah, I'm not even going to try to pretend like I know the number. because. Coaches get a huge role thrown on them, especially at lower levels, because you don't have the budget to have a strength and conditioning coach at a junior college level. You don't have the budget for 
you know, an assistant coach plus an offensive de- and a defensive coach. So, you know, these people, I think, kind of get this idea that I have to do everything. And my coach at FM was great. He was a great soccer coach. But when it came to the strength and conditioning and the, you know, the cardio side of it, I think a lot of that program lacked. And that wasn't his fault. You know, he just, he knew how to be a, a soccer player. He was a semi-professional soccer player. He knew how to be a soccer player. And he knew how to coach soccer, but he didn't know how to get in the weight room and show us exercises to get our, you know, he just didn't know the exercises to make us better and faster and whatever, which is not his fault. But it's, yeah, I think coaches kind of overstep their boundaries, sometimes on purpose and sometimes on accident when it comes to these, you know, these injuries that happen because, you know, ACLs, you know, you're not getting up after an ACL injury and it's pretty easy to, to see. But I remember when I was in high school, my senior year, my first game playing soccer, I got kicked in the face so hard that I broke my top molar in half and got knocked clean out. I was out unconscious for probably 30 seconds and I didn't go to the hospital. I, nothing happened. No, no, no one came. My coach picked me up and kind of shook me out and was like, you all right, let's go to the bench. And I didn't play, but I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, literally dizzy and I don't know where I'm at. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't remember the, the game at all. And uh, coaches can't make assessments like that. I should have been taken to the hospital right there. And, you know, either it would be on accident or on purpose, these coaching roles get overstepped. And I think it's important to have a wide variety of ideas and, and people behind one team because you can't, you can't do it all. The amount of responsibilities put on some of these coaches, especially at the community college and D3 level, is just massive. I mean, even when you look at like the the care for the athletes, the amount of responsibility put on like the two trained athletic trainers that are at the school. I mean, you know, we were we were probably not getting the proper treatment there and the trainers probably weren't communicating properly with the coaches. And none of the coaches had uh, strength and conditioning coaches to go along with them. We had, uh, we were lucky enough to have uh, diving coaches and an assistant coach on the swim team. But uh, the program that we did my first year for strength uh, and lifting was, I mean, it wasn't nothing. We got in the weight room, but it seemed, you know, kind of old and outdated. It was like an Excel spreadsheet that had been copied a bunch of times and, you know, it's, I don't blame uh, my coach for anything about how that happened because he's a swim coach. He does, he doesn't, you know, he, his specialty is not with lifting weights. Uh, I think it was my sophomore year. He had his son-in-law uh, come and do uh, like a special presentation on lifting form. And then uh, we started working with kettlebells all the time because of this guy. And I have, uh, you know, a lot of thoughts about that part of the program but in terms of uh injury i mean it didn't add any difficulty and it wasn't a negative uh you know there was nothing wrong with the way that we were conducting our strength training in that way it's just that you know you can't know everything about everything and if you're having this coach who maybe they're a soccer coach or a swim coach expecting that they would be such a good swim coach or soccer coach and also have all that expert knowledge about strength and conditioning is not fair. And then on top of that, like you were saying, they're expected to be treated like a, a physical therapist as well, being able to recognize, you know, when someone is, uh, you know, tired, lazy, or actually injured. And I think that uh, 
it's it's really hard to tell when that line gets blurred. I mean, I had a lot of friends who, you know, they were out several nights a week, you know, halfway, three quarters of the way through practice because, you know, they were having huge amounts of pain in their shoulders and their, you know, upper back. And, you know, we would ramp up our volume and swimming very quickly. And we would do, you know, two hour practices. And we were also, we were, we were doing all this stuff that was like, you know, if you're not adapting properly, you know, a lot of these people were probably experiencing like overuse injuries that were just barely being uh, treated well enough that they could still swim. And if, uh, you know, if I look back, like some of these people probably should have like, you know, oh, it, it really hurts that bad. Maybe take a couple days off, maybe, you know, swim, you know, half speed, half distance for a couple days, you know, just getting out and icing it and then getting back in and trying to do the exact same practice the next day was something that would happen a lot. And, you know, I don't exactly blame our coach for that too, because how's he supposed to know? I mean, he's not a trained physical therapist. How's he supposed to know the difference between, you know, it hurts a little bit. I don't want to swim because I'm lazy and you're actually, you know, someone who's actually got an overuse injury. It's a lot of responsibility to put on them. We, did our, you know, we did our best as athletes to like do what they said and improve as time went on. Uh, the only thing I can say for sure is that coach of yours, Andrew, was dumb. They should have taken you to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, that's I, I hear so many like horror stories of that. And I, I don't fault coaches who unknowingly do things like that when they get responsibilities thrust upon them, because I've I've heard from from being inside the, you know, the wellness or like wellness field for long enough hearing, you know, administrators like, Oh, you can't, what, you can't do that. Like you can't do 20 pushups. What, what's an overuse injury. What's, <laughs> what's overtraining? Like, what, is that a thing? You know? And I, I kind of, I feel bad for them for when those situations arise, because it's hard to decipher between someone like really, truly being injured. Like Phil said, being, I just don't want to do this, not trying to do it. And them not having the ability to register if someone's like injured or not. I've rolled my ankle so many times in like soccer games. And that's just kind of like a habit of playing a game with your feet. But like I was saying earlier, I've heard so many horror stories of, of athletes saying how they broke their elbow and their, their coach sprayed biofreeze on it and said, we got to win this game. Like go back out there. We'll worry about it later. And I just wonder how many college college careers for athletes have been ended because of that mentality for the coaches mm -hmm. who are not responsible or, you know, no, knowingly cause injuries to their athlete. And I've talked to many people who, you know, like volleyball players who had overuse injuries from practicing hits so much that they had to get rotator cuff surgery. And base, this happens to baseball players all the time. You know, like their coach doesn't understand that pitching 500 times in practice for five days a week and then going into a game is going to cause you some injury in your elbow. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I feel is easily can be easily fixed. If schools, you know, hire somebody like that. I feel like me personally, I feel sport. If you're going to have a, a sport, no matter what level it is, you should be mandated to have specific positions filled or not run that sport. Because what happens if Andrew, you know, he got knocked out, and his brain was bleeding and then mm -hmm. he just like he dies on the on the sideline because there wasn't just a person there to give him a concussion protocol you know double to do that 
like it, it puts your students and your athletes at such a high risk when these positions aren't filled. I wouldn't be upset if that's like a mandated thing or you just can't have the sport. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think every school should have some form of a strength and conditioning coach, at least, you know, one, maybe two, because a, a decent strength and conditioning coach, in my opinion, could probably help out every team. You know, you can't give sport specific training to every team, but you can give some type of weight training, some type of, of foam rolling technique. Like, I mean, in, in football, especially you got these kids going out there and just getting ran ragged, getting smacked. And then you like, get up. I'm seeing stars coach. It's like, well, ah, shake it out. It's, it's the lights. You're, you're fine. It's no, I did my, <laughs> my brain is literally swelling in my helmet. Like I can't remember my name anymore, but I know that I have to catch that ball. So it's like, nah, man, you, you, these kids are, are ruining their lives because the coaches don't, quite understand how to program effectively because I think what coaches fall into the that bad habit of is drilling just over and over again and just making sure the technique is dialed down. But sometimes that technique isn't so much a technique work. It's more of, you know, like like you were saying, fill volume. And sometimes over volume is just so detrimental to health. And you know, you can be the best athlete in the world. And if you just have a poor program and then just get hurt, then who's who are you helping? You're not helping yourself or your team. So I mean, yeah, I agree. I, I was actually surprised thinking back on it now. I mean, I wasn't surprised then, but I'm surprised they didn't have some type of athletic trainer there to be like, uh, so yeah, his eyes are going like this and, uh, he doesn't know who he is right now. We should probably get him somewhere. Like there was no one, there was the two, three coaches and then the referees and then a whole bunch of parents who just watched me get my shit smacked. <laughs> and what would have happened if I died? You know, like, cause there are cases where these high school, college, even professional athletes are getting smacked in the head and then they can't see straight and then no one does anything about it. And then they go to bed that night and then they die. They don't wake up. What an awful thing to just, it's so preventable and it's not being prevented. doesn't make sense. And I, I don't know how this injury prevention went into a concussion or concussion talk. <laughs> but, I mean, they're both kind of the same. They both have to get treated very, very serious. Cause if your brain's broken, that's not good. And if you're, you know, your uh, rotator cuff is getting overused so much that it's going to tear. Both of those are not good for your body. So, yeah, I think that there's uh, like a level of knowledge that I think needs to be on the like the athletic administrative team or the athletic faculty that like, you know, if someone there doesn't know this, whether it's a high school or a college, then you shouldn't be able to do it. You know, if, if there isn't someone like at every game or like, you know, available to like come to a practice, you know, this kid hit his head, call the trainer. Uh, or like, you know, the example that, you know, concussions and like uh, rotator cuff tears are one thing, but then another similar thing is like uh, hydration in which, you know, we could probably talk a whole topic on hydration, but it comes up a lot when, you know, teams in the South will be training in like 110 degree weather for three hours at a time and people will be passing out but people will also be getting sick because they're overhydrating, and there isn't someone there who has the authority to say like no it's it's 110 degrees out just cut practice uh they're just i i agree with you dion that the um if there isn't someone with that expertise there isn't like a strength and conditioning coach for the school you know a trainer at every game and you know the the coaches don't have the required knowledge or they don't exhibit it correctly then they shouldn't, you know, if you don't have this as a, as a college, you shouldn't be able to have this sport. If you don't have the resources to serve your athletes appropriately, then you don't deserve to have the sport. Facts upon facts upon facts. 
<laughs> we should definitely throw a hashtag in there too. Hashtag get my shit smacked. Dude, oh man, I still, I mean, I don't remember that game, but I remember the reoccurring side effects of that concussion. And it was heinous, dude. Because I went in, I slid on my side and came to grab a 50-50 ball. And I don't know if this kid missed the ball or what. I know he wasn't aiming for my face, I hope. But he just cracked me, dude. And you ever see those kids who are in a fight and they get knocked out and then their hands go up when they go on their back? That was probably 20 seconds. I don't remember anything after that. But I remember getting off the bus because I didn't even, I never went to the, they put me on the bus. So like, yeah, we'll get you home. (laughs) And so I get home and I'm so dizzy. I'm looking at my friend and I'm talking like I'm drunk and I go to get off the bus to get home and I fall over. I can't find my feet. My three or four of my buddies had to carry me off this bus and I get taken to the emergency room and like, yeah, you're clearly concussed. I had to get taken out of school for a week because I couldn't remember my short-term memory was probably at 15 minutes. I would have a conversation with Phil for 15 minutes and then I would walk away. And 15 minutes later, I would have zero recollection of ever seeing Phil that day. And so I had to go to a neurologist and she was like, yeah, you have probably one of the worst concussions I've ever seen for about two months. I I couldn't have my heart rate go above a certain beats per minute or else I would start blacking out. Yeah. I didn't have to go to the hospital as soon as I got hit in the head like that. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, if you don't have the resources to make sure that that's taken care of then yeah you shouldn't be able to play so i think we covered pretty much the majority of stuff we we went off on some fire tangents and spoke on things that we really didn't we didn't write down the uh the athletes being paid thing but (laughs) it was definitely good to talk about that do you guys have anything else you want to like add to the to the realm today yeah uh caveman barbell is doing a t-shirt giveaway for everyone who shares a the status on my facebook so if you go to andrew beckham comma NASM certified personal trainer or my personal Facebook page AB, you will find a graphic design linked to what says t-shirt giveaway. So if you share that status, next episode, we are giving away a caveman barbell t-shirt. So do that. What's going on guys? That was the fitness roundtable with Andrew, Caveman Barbell, Phil, Yoss Training, and Dion, Active Gamer Fitness. The roundtable is more of a discussion than anything. We hope you enjoyed. Leave a like and subscribe. Stay fit, stay strong, stay educated.